Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Mosin Hamid, the Man Booker shortlisted multiple prize-winning author, whose newest book, just out now in paperback, is Exit West. Mosin, welcome. Thank you. Can I start by asking you what, what you were trying to do in this book? Because it's a sort of, it seems very timely on the one hand, because it's a sort of fable in a way of the refugee crisis and of the movement from the global south to the global north. But it also has a kind of science fictional MacGuffin in it. Yes. I mean, uh, partly I think I was responding to, as somebody who is a lifelong migrant and mongrel, the kind of growing anti mongrel sentiment that we see everywhere from Pakistan to Britain to America. And partly the book was born out of a, I guess, a nightmare. Lahore, where I live in Pakistan, is uh, an ancient city. And the other ancient cities in the re- region that one read in school books growing up have all been consumed by civil war and devastation. And so this fear that maybe this could happen to Lahore one day was something I felt I had to express. Uh, but above all, I think that what has happened is we have entered into a moment where we are failing to articulate desirable futures. And because we can't imagine a future which is desirable, we are in the grips of a tremendous political nostalgia. And so I wanted to imagine a different kind of future. Well, you have somewhere in the book that there is a line where you say that I think one of the characters, Nadia, says, you know, depression is the, you know, diagnosed somewhere is the inability to imagine a, a desirable future. And that that's, it feels like that sort of two sides of the book coming together there. There's a sort of personal and a kind of yeah, I mean, that, that line comes from, it's, it's not my own. She's heard this line from someone, and um, that line is, isn't mine. But yes, it's you know, the notion that the state of depression is an inability to imagine a future that one could actually occupy and would want to occupy. I think that that describes our moment quite well. If you think of the major world leaders today, they either seem completely lost, paralyzed, or they envision an impossible return to how things were. There is sort of make America great again, which is a fundamentally nostalgic appeal. There is make Islam great again, the sort of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, you know, motto, very similar. There is make Britain great again by taking back control, which is sort of the Brexit motto. And you see it all over the place. And so it's as if we, in failing to think of where we might go, we have to go back. And in that sense, I think not only do we see a nostalgic politics, but we see a kind of profound depression, a mental illness permeating society, and so much so that the definitive sort of characteristic or at least most recognizable form of violence that characterizes our moment is the suicide bomber. And the suicide bomber is somebody who is killing themselves. It's a suicide, just like the suicide gunman or gun child going to their school in America and killing 12 other students and themselves is, is, is that thing. And so for me, this nostalgic politics and state of depression are are deeply intertwined. Let's talk a bit about the form into which you put it in the novel, because in one sense, it's a story of relationships between these two characters, Saeed and Nadia, who are in, I think I'm right in saying, a sort of unspecified country, you know, somewhere. It's got that sort of fable aspect to it or that that kind of generalised thing though their own lives and the details of their lives are very specific. But then it becomes the story of this these doors which appear around the world, so people are kind of migrating. There's a kind of migrant crisis that's instantaneous. Yes. 
you know, there have been a lot of very naturalistic treatments of the migrant experience and of the business of, you know, hiding in the back of a truck or paying. And you've removed that entirely from this. You know, it's a much shorter book as a result because the characters simply walk through doors and suddenly they're in Mayfair or Marin County and on the west yes. coast of America. What made you do that? Well, I think that the effect of technology is to create a collapse in our perception of geographic distance. And it's happening partly through things like Skype or FaceTime, WhatsApp, video conferencing, where you and I might have this conversation, might be having this conversation thousands of kilometers apart. We happen to be sitting, you know, one meter apart, but we could be looking through our computers at what looks like a window and seeing each other. But even more than that, we now each carry with us a black rectangle in our pockets or in our bags. And this black rectangle, our phone, the screen of our phone, is a continuous invitation to our consciousness. It's sort of like Gollum's ring in Lord of the Rings. It sort of calls out to us, it's our precious. If we lose it, we miss it. We think of it constantly and we're drawn to look at it. When we look upon that screen, suddenly our, our consciousness ceases to be in the physical place that our body is. And it is exploring Victorian history or Korean War or vacation destinations in the Caribbean or the history of Westeros. And my children play games like Minecraft and Roblox in Pakistan. And as they play these games, they are playing with kids from all over the world. And they don't think it's strange that some child in Ukraine or Brazil is interacting with them. Now, technology is doing all this stuff. And so for me, the doors reflect this state that we are in. But the doors also allow us to explore a world where that physical movement becomes, as I think it likely will, a much greater, of a much greater scale and with much greater ease than it is today. And also, you know, in terms of why do it this way, taking the movement part out takes out the mechanism by which we make migrants and refugees into something other than ourselves. Those of us who haven't crossed the Mediterranean in a small rubber dinghy or haven't crawled underneath barbed wire to reach Texas imagine that someone who has is fundamentally different. But they're not fundamentally different. They just had that one experience. Otherwise, they're people just like us. So all of that went into the thinking of it. But the doors themselves, you know, in a way came from a place much like the room you and I are sitting in right now, which for me is a room that brings to mind uh, an older London, and in particular C.S. Lewis and, and the books of Narnia. When I was writing this book, I'm a father with two kids. I've been rereading children's books and rediscovering the power of children's literature. And what I like about so much of children's literature is that it has this double partisan nature. It sort of is on the side of the characters. You know, Anna Karenina, sort of spoiler alert, when she throws herself <laughs> on the train at the end of the book, oh, oh. The, the, the narrator isn't saying, oh no, Anna, don't do it. But when Wilbur, the pig, faces death and only Charlotte's web can save him, the book is screaming for Wilbur to live. But at the same time, children's books are also a partisan in being on the side of the reader. They suggest to me that you're on the same side, that we are not going to try to fool you, actually. You're part of this. You're, part of, you're, on the, you're an insider. Is that, I mean, which technique do you think they use to do that? I mean, is that a sort of reluctance to use an unreliable narrator? or Among other things. I mean, yeah. exactly. So for my first three books, in many ways, have, have tried to use ambiguity to cause the reader to generate the reader's own response to the book, which is the second half of the novel. And the novel is, in part, a mirror to that response. That's how I've been writing, I suppose. I mean, the reluctant fundamentalist. Very that, much so. You know, very direct thing. It was a sort of... Actually, I'd remembered it as a closet drama, but it's really like a dramatic monologue, isn't it? There's yeah. only one voice. Yes, yeah. it's like a one-man play, exactly as you say, a dramatic monologue. And uh, it's a thriller in which nothing thrilling happens, you know. And so I think that t- 
type of book seemed to me entirely appropriate given a world such as the one I grew up in partially, which is Pakistan, where we were being told that everybody, you know, is pure and dance is forbidden and alcohol is forbidden and to write about a bunch of sort of adulterous, sex-having, drug-using characters who lie all the time. It's your first book. My first book, Mott Smoke, seemed a radical and necessary artistic response to me, to that upbringing. But now we live in a moment where the most powerful people in the world um, lie constantly. They tell us the truth does not exist and they say that decency is a myth. And so it seems to me the most radical and necessary artistic response to that environment is to, to say that truth is possible and that an aspiration for decency is also possible. And then when you think of how do you write a powerful book that says that, which is actually a lot harder than writing a book which, which says the opposite, some of the best models are children's literature, and that's what I've adopted for, for this one. It is a sort of, I mean, it feels in an odd way like, like it's quite an optimistic book. There's been about three quarters of the way through, there's almost a sort of tipping point because the, you know, Nadia and Said have found their way, they're in London, and they find themselves in a sort of cantonment, a sort of refugee area that's been sort of zoned off. And they're under attack from the nativists and they think this is it, we're going to be, you know, overrun by, you know, the equivalent of Britain first or, you know, no to the, no to the mysterious teleporting doors movement. And then it stops and people just, we can't do this, we can't go through with the massacre and they find this accommodation. Well, I think that human history, although we tend to read it in a very different way, is the story of massacres denied. Most of the time we haven't massacred each other. You know, Britain is wave upon wave upon wave of immigration and uh, Homo sapiens did not evolve on the British Isles. English wasn't spoken here until relatively recently. And, uh, of course, each of these migrations had all kinds of conflicts, battles that we read about in history associated with it. But mostly, it was people getting along. Outside of the battles, people were finding a way to coexist. And I think there's a reason for that, which is that we shy away from what would be necessary, the Nazi-like totalitarian methodical slaughter that would be required to do the alternative. And I think we will again in the future. Uh, you said that you know the book is sort of optimistic, and it's it's intentionally so, partly because I think things will be all right, and partly because what happens with our species is that levels of uh, of equality that formerly were inconceivable become conceivable each century, each subsequent century, because people die and generations pass. And so the London of today, the multicultural, multi-ethnic London of today, might have been a nightmare to somebody in 1917 or 1918. But today, 100 years in the future, very few would choose to rather live in that earlier period. And similarly, one or two centuries hence, our grandchildren's grandchildren will prefer, I think, this world. So we actually have a line in the book that says, we are all migrants through time. Yes, I think that's true. We experience life as a migration in the sense that every adult is a refugee from their own childhood. We each had the school we went to, the people we played with, the playground we spent time in, and we cannot return to that. And there's a loss of that. Uh, There's a loss of our parents, our grandparents, the people we loved, and we share in a kind of sorrow that comes with with that loss. What has happened is we have been taught to deny it. We deny it first of all in ourselves, And then we deny it in other people. And so we can't see what unites us with somebody who's fled from another place because we don't want to see what we've suffered ourselves. But that, to me, is part of a a general crisis that we face, which is we have come to disavow our own mortality. 
we used to have mechanisms for dealing with it, but now we have you know part of the human population which is let's say moved away from religion, but has not found a discourse to discuss formerly religious matters, and instead retains the anxieties. Those anxieties are are you know monetized by the market. We're sold stuff, but we don't feel better about those anxieties. And then we have another big chunk of the world which is still religiously minded, but in an era where religion has become very much about politics and group identity and much less about finding a way to live well and potentially die well. And so we are, are lost. And for me, you know, part of the cultural conversation that needs to occur right now is a human level uh, conversation open to people of any and no religion that discusses things like, you know, what is it to die well? What is it to live well? What do these things mean? And in this book, in a sense, and in my previous one, I'm trying to find a language that discusses both religious themes in a non-religious way and non-religious people in a way that, that covers terrain that people associate with religious conversations. To return briefly to your, in this business, the doors, you know, you said sort of governing metaphor behind that is, is technology. And of course, you know, novel's got this surveillance thing and you look up in the sky and there's a novel and there's always drones flying around. And so Do you think that the... I mean, we, we hear a lot about the way in which technology has enabled these kind of extreme tribalist responses. But it seems to be suggesting in some ways in, in this book that the technology that does allow your child to play Minecraft with children on the other side of the world actually enlarges sympathy rather than closing them off. Which way do you see it going? Well, technology is neutral. So technology is an expression of human desire. You know, the reason we have airplanes is because we wanted to fly. The reason we have phones where we can be anywhere, at least in our conscience, our consciousness, is because we want to be anywhere. I think that technology can kind of go either way. For me, in a sense, the greatest promise of technology is that, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of this kind of thing is likely to create enormous surpluses. And if we can find a way to equitably share those surpluses, what becomes possible in the very near future is an era for humankind that is much better than what has come before. But to share these surpluses equitably, we have to find a way to govern them collectively. And our current division into sort of nations isn't working very well, just as it isn't working well for climate change. So partly we have to evolve a kind of human sensibility, uh, because the only way to avoid a nation versus nation maximalist approach to technology, where we just sort of rush headlong as quickly as possible and let a few trillionaires accrue all the benefits, is to think about, well, you know, what is this thing? To what extent is it part of the commons? How should it be governed? And I think the good news is that uh, you know, human beings have, up until now, created identity usually in reference to some other. And you know, that's Catholic and Protestant, you know, Sunni and Shia, British and French, whatever. And that sort of balkanized our, our species. But for the first time, we are on the cusp of witnessing or encountering something that is potentially, in some ways, more intelligent and capable than us, which is sort of these machine learning systems. They have an enormous opportunity. They're also an existential threat. And I think we begin to enter into a place where human, humanity, for the first time, has another that isn't other people. And when that occurs, I think the idea that we are all human starts to matter because there's something else that is not human, which we can begin to see is potentially a threat and potentially, you know, a help. And so, so I think... John Connor will come. What's this? John Connor will emerge. Yeah, well, John Connor. I mean, I think, I think in a sense, the danger is that we are facing a, a moment where 
many of our old beliefs are starting to collapse. You know, the effectiveness of the centrally planned economy versus the market economy. I grew up working, you know, in corporate New York City and London, and uh, I'm a denizen of the of the sort of capitalist world. But if an algorithm can beat the best Go player, it is possible that an algorithm eventually can beat the best market allocation. That changes everything. Or similarly, you know, if you look at what China is doing in, in Pakistan, where I live, you know, Chinese people, Chinese investment is coming in in a big way. In China, for all of the failings of the totalitarian system, which is the Chinese Communist Party and its inhospitability to writers like myself, it is trying to ostensibly muster the potential of technology for the greater good. That is quite attractive to people. And I think that, you know, that Western liberal democracy has to respond to that. So uh, it's another way of saying I don't necessarily know the answers. I think we are on the cusp of change. And there's good reason to be optimistic because I think things will be very different in the near future to how they were in the recent past. And do you think fiction, I mean, you're writing it, obviously, still has a sort of direct role in that? I mean... When, yes. When you when you were making these arguments, you were making them in a fictional form. Yeah. I mean, do you subscribe to the old of, of idea that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in the city of Orwell. Certainly, I do. And the reason I do is this: there is a reason why we have the arts, and uh, we sometimes forget what it is. But as individuals, we have the arts for many expressive reasons. But as society, I think the arts are valued because it is valuable to have a bunch of people engage in the project of imagining what could be unencumbered by the restrictions of what has been and what is now. And and so, you know, partly what, what you can imagine is sort of writers are, you know, the R&D department of human civilization, you know, thinking about, you know, what how could things be? And so in a moment where part of our crisis is that we just can't seem to imagine a future that we'd like, I think it's important to begin to imagine that. And so what literature can do is at very low cost, like in a garage, so to speak, conjure up a world. And then readers can go into that world and they can decide for themselves what parts of it they like or don't like. They can decide for themselves to what extent it suggests their nightmares are real or fanciful. And that is a useful function. It's not the only function of art, but it's one of them. And so sometimes we get caught up in this thing that, you know, there's a distinction between sort of political art and non-political art. I don't think that there is such a thing. I think that there is art that uh, the creator of that art disavows the political implications of their work, and there's art where the creator doesn't do so. I don't think that, that you know, a novel is the same as an essay. The point of a novel is not to tell people, well, you know, this is what you should do. The point of a novel is to allow people to imagine being other people and to put those people into a different situation so that human beings encounter experiences they otherwise wouldn't encounter. And then, after that experience, they're different human beings, they can decide what to make of it. And that's what this novel tries to do. Of course, novels come with, come with sort of genres pre-attached, which have their own sort of internal logic. I mean, I'm, one of the things that intrigues me in this book is that you've got what seems to be, at first, as I say, a sort of love story. And towards the end, without giving away too many spoilers, the experience of migration and their move into the new world actually kind of not in a very dramatic way, but just gently sees... Said Nadia kind of peeling off sideways. Was that something that you sort of, as it were, planned or had to do? I'm thinking of Kurt Vonnegut's remark that he never likes to have a love story because by the end of the thing, the sky can be black, black with flying saucers and still people aren't going to, you know, they're only going to be interested in whether the boy gets the girl. 
Was I, the love story a danger to what you were trying to do? In no, I mean, I'm the kind of guy who, if the sky was uh, black with flying saucers, I'd still be only concerned about what I got. <laughs> and so all of my novels are love stories in different ways, different kinds of love stories. A non-possessive love and how to get filthy rich in rising Asia, the aftermath of a love in malt smoke, a love triangle where the third party is nostalgia and the reluctant fundamentalist. This novel is a love story about transience. I think that it's a first love. And, you know, what defines first love for most of us is that there was a second love. And so, therefore, you know, it is, it is about a love which didn't last. And for me, that's a very important kind of love to explore because how we let go means so much. You know, is it possible to love someone, relinquish that, but with a kind of spirit of friendship and perhaps a different kind of love? This matters because instead of the battle to the death mentality that we have these days, that either the West or China will win, either the secularists or the religious people will win, I think likely no one will win. And the, and the real question becomes, you know, how does one manage that? And similarly, I think in, in our own lives, to find beauty and hope in the face of the reality that everything ends, that is the challenge of a human life. And so a love story that explores that a love story about transience, for me, was, was really what the project was about. I really do think, you know, uh, I've said before, I'm, I'm a father, and, and when I think, you know, for my children, like, what is my job? You know, part of my job is to, is to be optimistic about the future because that's where they will live. But part of my job is to not deny the reality that everything is temporary and at the same time impart some kind of foundation for how one can live a life that is beautiful and meaningful despite that. And so that's the kind of love story this is. I don't think love stories are a lesser form of fiction. I think that you know, fiction should be judged on, on many different criteria. How are the sentences built? What does it achieve in terms of its imagination and its emotional power? And the love story, you know, like the happy novel, is not an easy thing necessarily to take on if one does it with rigor. Are your kids old enough to read this? Yet? No, they're not old enough to read this thing. But uh, my daughter, I think, expressed the sentiment perfectly when she told me while plonking away at her guitar. She's eight, and she writes these very dark songs, you know, from the center of my loneliness, you know, oh, I will see the darkness. <laughs> and I sort of listen to her singing this and say, you know, you're a happy kid. Like, what's up with these really dark songs? She says, you know, Baba, dark stuff sounds better. It's a lot easier to write. And, you know, I thought I'm both shocked by the lack of authenticity evident in that approach to songwriting and also very impressed with the writerly chops because she's right. It is harder to write. The happy stuff. She said, right. Mohsen Hamid, thank you very much. Thank you. And I'd like to make you aware of a brand new subscription offer we've got going for anyone who admires the great writer Steven Pinker. For just £12, you can subscribe to The Spectator for three months, receive a copy of Mr Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress, and tickets to see him in discussion with me, Sam Leith, at a special Spectator event this February.